Good morning and Boker Tov and welcome back to our weekly Parsha Perspectives for today in which we examine and analyze the Parsha and try to extract the lessons that can inform and inspire our everyday living today. Thank you so much for being with us and as always we want to thank our generous sponsors of the Parsha series for the year, our dear friends Becky and Avi Katz who've sponsored in memory of Becky's father, Lili Nishmas, David ben Menachem Manish, David Grossman, whose neshama should have an aliyah. Also, a special thanks, as always, to the OU for partnering and promoting this year. We're so grateful to the OU for all that it does. Okay, let's dive right in, because this week we have two parshios. We have a double parsha, Matos and Masay. This is a fantastic week. We're going to conclude Bamidbar. We're going to get to scream, Chazak, Chazak, Vinis Chazak, strengthen one another, and together we will be strengthened. It's always important. We finish and we have the opportunity to say this in the three weeks, a time of period of divisiveness and conflict. We can turn to one another and say, Chazak, be strong, and Chazak, be strong, and together, Vinis Chazak, together we will be strengthened as a result. So uh, it's important to be able to say that in these three weeks, and the message and the lesson of the three weeks is that we are not divided, we're not in conflict, we're not contentious, but rather our mission and our goal is chazak, chazak, to be able to strengthen one another, and the result of strengthening one another is collectively v'nitz chazak, to be strong. Okay, Parshas Matos begins in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash on page 900. Moshe spoke to the Rashi HaMatos, the heads of the tribes. He gives them this position of distinction. Why specifically to the heads of the tribes? Why to these Zakanim? Why to these elders? What is the message? What is the law he's about to teach? He's about to teach the law of Nidarim. Other laws, we have 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. So many of the others were not delivered specifically to the Rashi Matos, to the heads of the tribes, to the Zakanim, to the elders. Why specifically are these laws given to the elders? So what are the laws that are given? If a person takes a vow, if a person takes an oath, if a person makes a promise or a pledge to Hashem, then they have created a prohibition on themselves. So right now, the keyboard, the mouse that are in front of me, they're perfectly permissible. Not on Shabbos or Yantav, but throughout the week, and not depending what I type in or where I go with them, but they as objects are perfectly permissible. And yet, man has the power, the capacity, that if I say they are forbidden to me like a cheeseburger... They become forbidden like Basar Bechalov. We can transform the very nature. We can transform the very status and identity of objects from permissible to prohibited. So if I make that promise or pledge, I take an oath, I'm not going to eat corn chips from Trader Joe's, my kryptonite anymore. I'm not touching the potato chips at 12 o'clock at night anymore. I'm not going to, whatever the case may be, something which is permissible. Then, lo yachel dvaro, do not violate your word. Everything you say you're going to do, you should do. I saw one of the commentaries, I don't remember where I saw this, wonders. I don't understand. The Torah is already structured, 613 mitzvahs. We have positive commandments, we have negative commandments. And one of the prohibitions we have is Baltosif. I'm not allowed to add on. I can't pile on to the prohibitions that I have. I can't expand or add on to the mitzvahs, I don't add on to the prohibitions. So why isn't the concept of a neder or a shvua a form of Baal Tosif? Why doesn't it violate the prohibition of adding on to the existing Torah? Right now, the keyboard and mouse are permissible. Right now, the chair and the table are permissible. Right now, the Trader Joe's corn chips are not good for me, but technically they are permissible. Why am I allowed to expand the list of prohibitions? Isn't that a violation of Baal Tosif? 
So I forgot where I saw it. I apologize. I'm not. I'm not uh, fulfilling, saying something in b'shem omrom. But the answer is that's why this section specifically. That's why this section is introduced with the idea of in front of the rashi matos, in front of the leaders of the tribes. Because how is it that I can make a neder? Because I can always annul it. The Torah builds in the mechanism to take a vow, a pledge, or a promise to transform the status of something. But it also builds in the way out. It gives me the loophole. It gives me the ability to annul the vow or the promise I took in front of whom? In front of a Beisden, in front of the Zikainim, in front of Hediotos, a simple Beisden, or a more complicated Beisden, depending on the vow or the promise that I took. So therefore, it's not a violation of Batosev, because unlike the rest of the prohibitions of the Torah, which are non-negotiable, which are not debatable, which I cannot annul or release myself from, a vow I always can back out, a vow I always can annul, and that's why specifically, Specifically, this was delivered in front of the Rosh Matos because they are a critical part of the solution of how to get out of the vow, and they're a f- critical part of the reason that the institution of vows is not a prohibition of the general attitude or mandate of Baal of Baal Tosif. So here the Torah says that if you take this promise, Lo Yachel Dvaro, what do these words Lo Yachel Dvaro mean? So look at Rashi. Says Rashi, Lo Yachel Dvaro, Kimo Lo Yechalel Dvaro, Lo Yaseh Dvarav, Chulin. That word yachel comes from the word chol. We have a long list of words that begin with ches vav lamed. We have a long description that are really ultimately what chulin or chol is about. For example, the weekday contrasted to Shabbos or Yantif. Shabbos and Yantif are called kodesh, and the weekday is called chol. It's mundane, it's secular, it's profane in nature. A person who desecrates God's name has created a Chilol Hashem. A person who violates Shabbos is a Mechalel Shabbos. Somebody who converted something consecrated or holy made Chilol to it. Somebody, Chalal, creates a vacuum that, that, that those letters, Ches Lamed, are secular, mundane, profane. They are the opposite or inverse of Kodesh of holiness. When there's a violation of holiness, when there's an absence of holiness, the opposite of holiness that you get is, that you get is, Chol is chulin. So therefore, lo yachel dvaro, don't make your words chulin. Don't make them chol. What does it mean not to make them chol? So if we establish that chol is the opposite of kodesh, it means what should one's words normally be? What should a person's words normally be? Words are a conduit, an instrument of holiness. We can build, we can construct, we can um, encourage, we can transform, we can elevate, we can enrich What we can do with our words, what differentiates us from the animal kingdom, is our words. It is what makes us Kodesh. It's what empowers us and enables us to be holy. And when we violate those words, when our promise, our pledge mean nothing, when we don't follow through and we don't show up, when we use our words too freely, too loosely, too profanely, then we've turned what should be naturally Kodesh, our words, into Chulin. We've turned them into chulen. Lo yachel dvaro. Says the Torah, you make a promise, a pledge, you have the ability with your words to turn the microphone, the keyboard, the table, the chair. You took something that God gave that was simple and you made it holy. Lo yachel dvaro. You made it holy. Don't reverse it. Lo yachel dvaro. Says Rashi, don't turn it into chulen. Lo yachel. Lo yachel dvaro. Lo yasa dvaro chulen. Don't turn it into chulen. Our words are the holiest thing that we, are the holiest thing that we have. The Tzadok, Rav Tzvi Hirsch, of Vadislav, explained the Pasuk, Ki yidur neder lo yachel dvaro. 
If a person makes a nether, if a person makes a promise, don't violate it. Don't come up short on it. Don't not fulfill it. And then the Torah says, So he sees the following lesson here. He sees, What happens? You say, I've had it. I'm dieting. I'm changing. It's not a diet. No, it's not a diet. It's a lifestyle change. A diet is that I'm, for now, I'm not eating that. It's a lifestyle change. Carbs, sugar, flour, lifestyle change. Kidor neder. The new Peloton, the new treadmill, it's no longer a clothing hanger. I'm going to go on it five to, no, six times a week. Shabbos, I'll take off. But this is not a new habit of uh, exercise. It's a lifestyle change. I'm going to learn Shas. The Rambam Yomi just began. I'm going to finish the Rambam once a week. All of Mishnah Torah. You get so, I'm never getting angry again. I'm never getting jealous again. You get so excited. You make a promise. You make a pledge. That's it. I took a seminar on time management. I took a seminar on how to organize my email. I'm getting back to everyone that hour. No one will ever wait. I'm changing my whole life. That's it. That's it. I'm changing everything. Says the Tzadik, Ratzvi Hirsch, means the same level of enthusiasm, the same level of excitement and joy with which you took that promise or pledge, fulfill it. Don't let it wax or wane. Don't let it wear off. Don't come a week, a month, a year later. Oh, that pledge? Yeah, yeah that was during coronavirus I said I'd exercise. I said, oh yeah, I remember that. During the pandemic I said I would, I would behave in that way. No, let the same level of excitement, the same level of enthusiasm that you have when you, begun, when you began that project, let it carry you, let it carry you forward. But it means something else also. It means are we people who fulfill our promises? On Wednesday mornings we learn Mesilas Tasharim for 10 minutes, 10 minutes of meaning. And we're up to the, the uh, parak of Nikias, the third quality in the 12-step program to self-perfection. And it's called Nikias. It's how do we rid and purge ourselves of the kind of behaviors and habits that sabotage our own success, our own meaning and purpose in this world. And we go through them one by one, and the character trait, the quality that Ramchal has now been talking to us is about fulfilling our promise and our word. If I say to you, you know, I'll call you back. I'll follow through. I'll take care of that thing. I'll meet you at this time. And then I'm perpetually late. And then I don't follow through. I don't call you back. Then I have violated my word. What is the value of my word? What is the value of, of my commitment to you? What is that relationship? Lo yachel dvaro. It has to mean something. When I say something, it has to mean something. In that context, I told a story, which I'll repeat here because it's, it's worthwhile to repeat. And that is, um, you know, Rav Shechter, Mori Varabi Rav Shechter, should be well, who's been a hero for all of us during this time, putting out shuvos and giving us halachic instruction, his broad shoulders that we, that we rely on and lean on and stand on in times like this and, and in so many beyond. So he uh, gives many, many, many shiurim. It wears out his voice and he drinks tea all the time. And whenever you bring him tea, he's been at my house many times, shouldn't be many more, please God. Rebbe, can I bring you a tea? Yes. What, would, what are you taking? It's sweet and low sugar? Nothing. I take it plain. So he takes it plain for many years since I've known him and well before. So he was once challenged, why, do, why don't you take sugar? Why don't you take sweet and low? And after one of his Talmidim muttered him and, and, and challenged him so many times, he finally told the story that 50 years earlier, he had been in Israel. When he was first married, he and his wife, the Rebetzin, went to Israel. And they were in a home of somebody who uh, wasn't uh, strict with the laws of Akashras and offered him something. He thought a tea was safe to have. He had a tea. And the person said, would you like sugar? Whatever the kashras complications of sugar in Israel. But he said, instead of saying, I don't trust your kashras, he simply said, I don't take anything in my tea. 
And for more than 50 years since then, since he uttered the words, I don't take anything in my tea, though he could have said, look, I was doing it, Mishanam Apnea Shalom. I distorted the truth a little bit in order to maintain and preserve Shalom bias. I did it in order not to insult the person. I did it not to make a Chil Hashem. I'll do Ataras Nadarim from that promise. No. Which says, Everything that leaves your lips you should keep. And the same thing here, Whatever leaves your mouth you should say. Don't use your words lightly. Don't waste them. And don't turn them into chulen. Don't turn them into chulen. And in that regard, I'll just end and we'll move on to the next section by telling you, and I've shared this before uh, as well, um, and it's really, really important during this time of pandemic and of pessimism during this time that people are so down and despondent that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Chusso Yagen Aleinu, Lubavitcher Rebbe, Zechet Tzadav Kadosh Lavracha was very strict about the usage of words and he based it on our parsha. He based it on an understanding. The Torah tells us that Lo Yachel, what you should not make chulin, is Dvaro. How do you say your word in Hebrew? Dvaro. Lo Yachel Dvaro. Your dibur, to speak, is dibur. Your word, dvaro, lo yachel, don't turn that into chulen. And the Rebbe noted that that same word, dvaro, that same word, dibor, which means to speak, also the word davar means a thing. You turn something into a thing by the way we speak about it. Our words matter. Our words create reality. Our words transform the universe. And when we use those words lightly, when we use those words mindlessly and thoughtlessly, when we use those words insensitively, when we use those words with no real commitment or plan to follow through behind them, then we've created, our dibur has created a davar. It's created a reality, a thing. We're not trustworthy. We're not reliable. We're not holy. We're not elevated. We don't seek to enrich other people's lives. And this is uh, something the Rebbe drew from Kabbalah, Kabbalistically, but it's also been um, reinforced through modern-day science and neuroscience. Neuroscientist Andrew Nurberg and Professor Mark Robert Waldman, words can actually change your brain. They have a book, Words Can Change Your Brain, and they write, quote, a single word is the power to influence the expression of genes that regulate physical and emotional stress. MRI scans demonstrate a single negative word can increase the activity in the amygdala, the fear center of the brain. Seeing a list of negative words for a few seconds will make a highly anxious or depressed person feel even worse. And the more you ruminate on them, the more you can damage key brain structures that regulate memory, feelings, emotions, and they impact your sleep, appetite, and sense of well-being. And I won't belabor this point, but when we use negative words incessantly, pessimistic words, when we use words that describe a despondency or hopelessness, when we use words like quarantine and pandemic uh, regularly, then we wonder why we can't sleep or have no appetite or are filled with anxiety. Lo yachel dvaro, the dibur, creates the davar. It rewires our brains and it impacts our mental and our physical health and well-being. And therefore the Rebbe emphasized the importance of choosing those words incredibly carefully. There's a great article on uh, Chabad, Dot com, dot org. The Rebbe's Unusual Word Choice by Remendel Kalmanson, and I, I highly recommend it. I'll just give you a couple examples, and then we'll move on. The Rebbe took this incredibly seriously. He wouldn't use negative or pessimistic words because of the impact, the dibur on the davar, the reality of the way we think and where we are. So, for example, the Rebbe disliked the word deadline. He wouldn't talk to somebody about, get your article in, you're on a deadline, what's the deadline for the project? He preferred due date. Deadline includes the word dead, as opposed to due date, describes the birth of something new, creativity and excitement. And again, so we'll say, ah, it's semantics and who cares and what does it matter? 
You know how many conversations I've had, particularly with young people, where you're trying to promote being careful with clean language. Don't curse. Don't use profanity and vulgarity. And they say, ah, words are arbitrary constructs of man. What's the difference? What do you? What what difference does it make anyway? Lo yachel dvaro dibur creates a davar. It makes a difference. It wires our brain. If you call it a deadline versus a due date, it makes a difference. Do you call it a retreat? Or do you call it a conference? A retreat sounds like you're going backwards. You're regressing. You're surrendering. The Rebbe didn't like it. The Rebbe didn't like undertaking projects. Undertake connotes half-heartedness. Under is like underneath. He didn't say you undertake a project. He didn't describe geographical places or people as far away. The Rebbe, who had such an impact on Kirov, refused to call it outreach. Outreach suggests you're far and I'm close and I'm bringing you to where I am. When the Rebbe was asked for an endorsement on a hospital, he said on one condition, it's not called a Beit Cholim, a place for sick people. It has to be called a Beit Rifuah, a place for healing and for healthy people. And the examples could go on and on. I'll give you one more. We know that there are four levels of existence. You have the Domeim, and then you have the Tzomeach, the Chai, and the, and the person, the Medaber. First of all, notice that the highest level person is the Medaber. The Domeim, we would normally translate. In fact, when uh, one of the great rabbis was translating Tanya into English, he translated the word Domeim, as it's classically translated, as inanimate. And the Rebbe corrected him and refused to publish the translation that way. It said not inanimate, because inanimate implies there's no connection to God, there's no spiritual flow, there's no energy in it. Everything in existence, according to the Tanya, is influenced, informed, inspired, only exists because there is a flow of energy from Hashem. So he changed, he crossed out the word inanimate and changed it to the word silent. The domain is on the table and the chair, of course, are not inanimate. They're animated by Hashem, but it's a silent animation. We don't perceive it, as opposed to the tzomeach, the vegetative world, and the chai, the animal kingdom. And the highest level is, not coincidentally, the human being is described as the medaber. Lo yachel dvaro dibur. What differentiates us, what distinguishes us, what elevates us, what reflects us is dvaro dibur, is our language. The words we use, the dibur creates the davar, creates the reality of what we of what we have. And the list of examples could go on and on that the Rebbe was careful. Lo yachel dvaro, do not waste your words. Okay, let's go weiter. So this whole first section is about is about that, taking our words seriously. Every year I share the Rav's insight. Kol Nidre night, Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. And what does it begin with? Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre? Is there a more anticlimactic moment in the world than getting on all white, mouthwash, getting ready to fast 25 hours, taking on the persona of angels coming together? And what is our first act? Not to declare Shema, Kamocha, not to talk about holiness and sanctity. What do we do? The very first thing to greet and welcome Yom Kippur? Kol Nidre. Let us repeat three times this legalistic liturgy of annulling our vows. Is there anything more anticlimactic? Is there anything more lacking in spirituality or excitement or energy to begin the holiest day of the year? And Rabbi Soloveitchik said, you know why you begin Kol Nidre night? Because you're about to undertake the process of repentance for 25 hours, you need to know that your words matter. They mean something. When you took on this pledge and promised to be an observant Jew, whether explicitly or implicitly you were born into it, the promises you made to relate to others, to be good to others, kind to others, to follow through with others, we begin Yom Kippur by reviewing and reminding ourselves of the value of our words, that they matter, that they must mean something, that lo yachel dvaro, and we have the whole detailed section here, which I wish we had time to go through, so many insights on, about Nadarim and how they're annulled. 
husbands and fathers and bezdins and what if you violated the spirit of your vow even though you didn't violate technically the actual law of your vow nevertheless Hashem Yislach La you still need repentance and atonement from Hashem and why that is but we don't have time page 902 because we got two parshas today Matos and Masai we got a lot to get through Perak Lamed Aleph Pasuk Aleph page 902 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash the next section Take revenge against the people. The Jewish people should take revenge against whom? The Midianim. Why? Afterwards you will be gathered to your people. Moshe Rabbeinu has given this last instruction. It's time to take revenge. The Jewish people don't get angry. We get even. We do? What happened to the fact that we're not supposed to get even? We're not supposed to take revenge. That too is not for now, the whole Jewish attitude towards revenge. Um, but here we have Nekom Nikmas Bnei Yisrael. In fact, we daven in Avarachamim, Hashem, you should avenge the martyrs of the Jewish people. How do you reconcile this parsha? How do you reconcile that prayer with the uh, prohibition that we're not supposed to be a vengeful people? I'm giving you a lot of things that are not for now. I want to make sure you continue to come back every week and every year for Parshas Matos and Masai. So we take this revenge against the Midian people. What did the Midianite people do to us? They actually were our kryptonite. When Bilam couldn't successfully curse us, they sent a bunch of Moavi Midiani women to us, and they took us down with promiscuity, licentiousness. They attempted us, and we fell for it. And therefore, Moshe is told, Gather an army, put together a mighty force. And now, you need to avenge God's honor against Midian. Here too, by the way, there's a contradiction. We called it Nikom Nikmas Bnei Yisrael. Whose honor are we avenging? The vengeance, the revenge is for whom? Bnei Yisrael. And now, just two psukim later, three psukim later, Lases Nikmas Hashem B'Midyan. Is it Nikmas Bnei Yisrael? Or is it Nikmas Hashem? Which is it? So those of you who listen to Sitter Snippets, which should be all of you, if you don't, you could listen on podcasts or why you told Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg every day or sign up for our WhatsApp groups many times a week for the six-minute Sitter Snippets. We just covered an Az Yashir, one of the commentaries, one of the Pesukim in Az Yashir, is that we see that Nikmas Hashem and Nikmas B'nai Yisrael are intertwined. They're one and the same. When you mess with my kids... If you're unkind to my children, if you're cruel to my children, if you mess with my children, you're messing with me. I don't say I'm avenging my children. I say I'm avenging me. My children are me. If you're rude or discourteous, if you're unkind or you're immoral towards my children, I will destroy you. I won't get angry because anger is prohibited, but I will make sure to take care of you. Why? You don't touch my children. That's how Kosh Baruch Hu feels. He's our father. So the nekama for us is, is against him. And we reciprocate, we feel the same way. Our whole mission, our whole purpose here on earth is to promote and spread our name. What is our name? It's our family name. It's our family value system. It's who we are and it's who we represent. And if you're going to besmirch, if you're going to violate my family name, you're gonna speak that way about my parents, believe me, you will pay a very heavy price. And so the Nikmas Hashem and Nikmas Yisrael are inherently and intrinsically intertwined. They're one and the same. Our whole mission and existence here on earth is to be Marbekvod Shemaim, to advance the honor of Hashem. And Hashem has a very special relationship with us. He is Avinah Shemaim. We are Banim Atem Hashem. We are His children. And therefore, he brings the attitude that if you mess with my children, you're messing with me. And we bring the attitude that if you mess with who we are and what we represent, Hashem, then you're messing with us. So we therefore go against Midian. We recruit uh, members for the army to go to war against the people of Midian. Moshe sends them out. And who's going to lead us? 
Who do we know is the most courageous warrior who doesn't wait, doesn't hesitate? He is brave, tenacious, resilient, runs headlong into battle, who has proven himself very recently. We are led by Pinchas bin Alazar HaKohen Latzava, Uklekodesh Chatzotro Satru Biado. We've got our instruments, we've got our weapons, we are ready to go. Time to take on Midian, to wipe them out, to prove to not only Midian, but to the world, you don't mess with Klai Yisrael, and you don't mess with Hashem. So I'll tell you, I saw a very interesting question, and I heard this question from a seven-and-a-half-year-old little boy. I was learning Parsha Sunday with my son Shai, and we were learning about the fact that the Jewish people are going to go to war and battle with Midian. And he said to me a question I never thought of. He said, Abba, Moshe went to war with his father-in-law? I had to think for a moment. Yisro was calling Midian. So in his mind, associating Yisro as being a leader of Midian, he said to himself, what do you mean? Moshe went to war against his own father-in-law? Against Yisro? So... It's beautiful. He still thinks at that age that sons-in-law and fathers-in-law would never go to war. Baruch Hashem. They never should go to war. They should get along. I get along and love my father-in-law like my father, and I love my sons-in-law like my sons. So, But Moshe would go to war with Yisro. So I told him, according to many opinions, though it's a debate, Yisro converted, he joined the Jewish people. But he said to me, still, Yisro was a leader. He came from Midian. Wouldn't it be hard for Moshe to lead a battle and a war against the very people that his father-in-law, that his wife, his wife grew up in Midian. This is her hometown. And now he's leading battle. I thought that was a fascinating question. Sometimes out of the mouths of babes, they bring an innocent perspective when they're learning the Parsha for the first time or for the first few times, they bring a perspective we often don't. So the Torah here tells us what happens. They go to battle. They go to battle. And what do they have to do when they go to battle? They, uh, Moshe rebukes the officers. He gets them all ready. And when they go to battle, they... Lamad Aleph Chaf Aleph. Lamad Aleph Chaf Aleph. They come back from battle. They're successful. They triumph. Hashem is behind them. They are avenging His honor and our own. So what happens? Elazar Kohen, Aaron's son, tells those who are returning from war, What did they conquer at war? They came back with, you know, every man knows when he goes on a business trip, he better come back with something for his wife. So they go to battle, business trip, that's their job, and they better come back with something with their wife. So there are no silver stores, and there was no Godiva chocolate in Midian they could come back with. What do they come back with? The spoils, the booty, the loot of the war. And what is the best spoils, booty, and loot? Honey, I got you a new Pyrex dish. I brought you a new frying pan. I got you a new set of cutlery. I got you a new set of... They came back with all the kitchen appliances and utensils. What's the problem? Midian didn't keep kosher. So here is where the Torah inserts the laws of how to kasher. They triumph against Midian. They bring back these utensils. And now it's time to kasher. But I want to draw your attention first to a very interesting anomaly. When Elazar talks to the people, he talks to the people who are El Anshei HaTzavah, Amam Perek, Lamed Aleph, chapter 31, verse 21. Pasuk Chav Aleph, page 906 in the Arts Girl Stone Chumash. Vayomer Elazar Kohen El Anshei HaTzavah Ha-Ba'im La-Milchama. Ha-Ba'im La-Milchama. What do you mean, Habaim la milchama? What should it say? Habaim min ha milchama. They're not Habaim le milchama. They're not coming, going to war. They're coming from war. It should be a mem from war, not a lamed le to war. They're coming from war, not going to war. What's going on? I saw the Satma Rebbe, Rabbi Yailash asked this question, and also in the set of Svarim that nobody looks at that you got for your bar mitzvah, you know, the thin little white Mayana Shal Torah. It's great stuff. Take it off the shelf, dust it off. Every person 
doesn't matter how many years since your bar mitzvah, you should be looking at the Mayana Shatora. There's great stuff in there. I don't mean to denigrate the Mayana Shatora. Maybe people look at it religiously, it makes a wonderful gift. Everybody should study it closely. So in both places they ask the same question, in both places they give the same answer. The Mayana Shatora and Rabbi Yelish and the Satmar Rebbe, they say the same thing. Why does it say Haba'im Minham Limilchama, not Minha Milchama? They say the following. I'll read it to you from the Mayana Shotora. The Sefer Chovos Halvavos, Rabachi Ibn Bakuda, gives the example, the mashal, that he once encountered a brigade, a unit in the army, and they were coming back from a battle. They were coming back from a war. And they were so jolly and joyous and happy and toasting l'chaim to one another because they had been successful. So Amr Lahem, he says to them, Atem nitzachtem b'melchama ketana umutas erech ve'ilu ka'es tzfui l'chem l'chama gedola pikama halohi mechem asayetzer. You're so joyous because you think you're coming back from a war. You think you won and it's over and it's time to celebrate. My dear friends in the brigade and the unit and the army, you've won the small war, but you're coming back to fight what is the much bigger and more daunting war. And that is the war with the Yetzirah. Your own success is going to breed arrogance. Your own success is going to breed ego. Your own success in that smaller war is going to make you someone difficult to live with. You're going to become this person who micromanages and forces yourself on others. So often you see this as hard. Officers, soldiers, they come home from war, aside from the PTSD, the PTSD that they bring back. But sometimes that, that warrior, that sense of might, that power, that adrenaline release, the, the sense of, of hero syndrome of coming back can make it hard to re-enter and hard to get along with others. And so he gives this muscle. You're coming back from the smaller war, but know that you're about to fight what is the bigger war. You're coming back from defeating, from defeating um, Amalek, uh, coming back from defeating Midian, but you need to know you're about to engage. Before you let your guard down, before you start f- stop fighting and battling, you need to know you've got another fight to fight. And what is the antidote to arrogance? You need to purge. Arrogance is fire. You're on fire with an ego. How do you extinguish it? How do you replace it? How do you purge it? With fire. That's, how, that's the mitzvah of Hagalas and Libun Kalim. The mitzvah of kashering. Kebolo kachpolta. The way that you absorbed is the way that you have to purge. So if you absorbed arrogance and ego with war, with fire, then you get it out with fire. And that's why that is the law that it's given. And he says here in the Mayana Shaltoira, Rabbi Yedish doesn't include this, this answers a question of the Ramban. The Ramban wonders here on our parish the following question. The Ramban says, is this the first battle? Is this the first war the Jewish people have faced? Is this the first time the husbands are coming home from a business trip and they had to hop something to give to their wives so they took the kitchen utensils and appliances? No. Where else did they fight, the Ramban says? We defeated Sichon Vaog. So we already defeated Sichon and Og, and we came home with frying pans and cutlery and crystal and all kinds of wonderful new things for our dining room table and our kitchen. So why weren't these laws given then? Why weren't these laws given then? Why didn't we take the spoils then? So he says, because Mechemes Sichon Vog Hishtat Fukolben Israel, Velohi Efo Makum Lagaiva Ekevanitzachon. Because when it came to Sichon and Og, all the Jewish people participated in that war. We all went. So no one came back feeling superior to anyone else. No one came back feeling more triumphant and therefore more arrogant 
over anyone else. This only 12,000 participated in, and therefore they might have come home, and after the parade celebrating their victory, they might have displayed a dose of arrogance, and that's why specifically here we need to be given these mitzvahs. These mitzvahs. So the Torah tells us, what do you do? You get new utensils. What is the process? What's the procedure? What do you need to do? We've mentioned some of these before, but we're going to expand on them now. So first, Torah says, The Torah here lists all kinds of metals. All these metals, gold and silver and copper, iron, tin and lead, everything that comes in fire, we have a principle, kebolo kachpolto, the way something absorbs taste is the way it purges taste. Those who learned smichas chavar with me last year, we went through these laws in depth. Many took the test and passed it. Means that a barbecue, great, a frying pan, something where heat is the medium to impart taste, heat is the medium to take the taste out, to purge the taste. Where a liquid medium, where a liquid is what imparted the taste, then hagala, we boil water, we immerse it in boiling water in order to extract the taste. The way it goes in is the way it comes out. However, the Torah says something else you have to do. What do you have to do with new kalim? If you get a new utensil that you acquire from a non-Jew, that's made by a non-Jew, what do you have to do with it? You have to immerse it in the mikvah. The kalim mikvah, please got a little bit more rain and our kalim mikvah will reopen. We're just waiting for a little bit more rain. But in a lake, in a river, it has to meet certain criteria to be a ma'ayan, a mikvah. You have to immerse that new utensil before you can before you can use it. Why? Where does this obscure, somewhat bizarre halacha come from? I understand people immerse, and they purify, and they elevate through the experience of immersion. But my utensils, my utensils, my pots, my pans, my forks, my knives, that really matters? Why? Why? So the Me'iri and the Gemara in Avodah Zarah, the Mishnah Avodah Zarah, the Gemara in Avodah Zarah is where we have these laws. And the Me'iri there writes the following, that what is the experience of tefillah? Anytime we put something in a mikvah, we are transforming, we're elevating, we're giving it a sense of holiness. We're taking it kind of like lo yachel dvaro. Our speech can be chulin, it can be profane, mundane, or the opposite, the inverse, it can be holy. Similarly, everything material, physical in our world, our very kalim, our utensils, can be used in a secular, profane, mundane way, or they can be instruments, they can be tools of holiness if I transform them. The Pnine Halacha, or Beliezer Malamed, the Rosh Hashiva and the uh, Rav of Har Bracha, says the following in a Sefer Pnine Halacha. Do you know why we have this whole halacha of Tuyas Kalim when you learn this? It'll change the way that you see Tovel and Kalim. The whole institution of Tvilas Kalim is to ingrain and engender within us a different attitude towards the act of eating. That which the rest of the world sees as profane, mundane, animalistic, necessary we see as an opportunity and invitation to holiness. We don't eat like a pig, we don't eat like an animal, we don't fress, rather we eat with sanctity, with holiness. We eat only with that which is kosher. We make a bracha before and after that which we eat. We invite others to eat with us. We share what we have with others. The food itself becomes the ability. Kedusha the holiness of eating. We use it in order to, in order to gain a holiness. The holiness of eating. The word lechem, and milchama are from the same root. 
Because bread, there's a battle every time we eat. Are we going to do it in a mundane, profane way? Or are we going to eat in a way which elevates us, which helps us achieve holiness? Do we live to eat? Do we eat to live? Do we eat the same way as somebody who doesn't have Torah in their life? Do we eat in the same way that someone who's not in Ever Hashem, a Yireh Hashem? Or is somebody distinguished in their eating? What they eat and how they eat, how much they eat, how often they eat, why they eat, with whom they eat. Everything about our eating can say so much about us. Do we eat like everyone else? Or is our very act of eating something which reflects a yearning and an aspiration, an ambition for greater holiness? And therefore, tefillah's kalim, just like the person who's impure becomes pure by going in the mikvah, we take our utensils and we put them in the mikvah. And when we put them in the mikvah, we essentially affirm our intention that these utensils are meant to be instruments of, not of profanity, not of of something secular or mundane, but they are instruments of holiness. We transform them. We put them in the mikvah and they come out. In the same way that a human being who goes in the mikvah is able to reinvent themselves, is able to start again, is able to achieve a holiness and a sanctity, so to our very utensils achieve that and have that goal and have that purpose. Rav Hirsch here in our parsha also says something very similar and fascinating. The Torah, when it lists the utensils, the material, the ingredient of utensils that have to go in the mikvah, the Torah gave five types of metal. But metal is not the only biblical commandment. Many people don't realize this. Glass is also biblically obligated to go to the mikvah. It's just not listed in the Torah. We extrapolate from metal because just like metal can be broken down, melted, and reconstituted, so too the glass is something which is reconstituted. Glass and metal have to go to the mikvah. Earthenware does not. Plastic does not. There are detailed laws of tefillah's kalim, which we're not going to go through now. But why does the Torah specifically provide metal as the example? And Rav Hirsch writes the following, he says the following, a very beautiful and fascinating insight. He says, the metal represents our control over the world. Because nobody ever finds or mines metal in the shape of a fork or a spoon or a pot or a pan. When you see metal in the form of a utensil, it means that man exerted our creativity, our dominion. Man exerted our uh, innovation on it, that we created that utensil. So man is able to take that hard material and we're able to shape it into something. We take the material world and we shape it into something that has a purpose and has meaning and has a goal. And therefore, says Rav Hirsch, what is it for? For the very act of eating, which is an animal act, we take a utensil which man shaped to have meaning and purpose, to tell us that our eating should have meaning and purpose. We don't fress and we don't eat to satisfy some carnal animal urge, but we eat in order to elevate, in order to transform. Such a beautiful insight. So specifically, metal was given as the example. Why? Because metal is something that we manipulate. Metal we mold, we form, we shape, and that is the attitude, the mentality that we're supposed to have to our entire lives, is to mold and shape and form our lives into meaning and purpose, into instruments and utensils to make a difference and to be a difference in our lives and in the lives of others, and that gives a whole new meaning. Tefillah's kalim is not just, oh, you got to load the trunk, the newlyweds, all the gifts, you got to peel off the stickers and the sticky glue, you got to wait online and the garbage is already overflowing and the water is disgustingly yucky and you drop the fork that fell out of the basket and how are you going to recover it? And Tefillah's kalim should not be some burdensome, torturous experience. It is, it is such a beautiful elevating when you understand it in the context of the Me'iri, the Pinei Halacha, Rav Hirsch. It is such a beautiful elevating experience of Tefillah's kalim. Who doesn't want to run to the kalim mikvah right now and tovel something and make the statement that our eating, the 
the utensil, the instrument, the molding, the shaping of our lives is entirely different than those who eat for other kinds of purposes. We said that everything that goes in fire, anything that absorbed the taste in fire, you have to purge it with fire. So I'll tell you, because we have to say in Imre Chaim, the Vishnu Tarebbe, says the Imre Chaim, the Holy Vishnu Tarebbe, anything that became, that contracted uh, taste through fire, you purge it with fire. If you had such fire, enthusiasm, passion, you ran to the internet to watch that thing, you ran to the magazine, you ran to give that gossip, that lashanara, you ran to cut corners in your tax returns, you ran to whatever the sense of fire that drove you to do the wrong thing is the same level of fire that you need to employ in order to pursue and chase doing the right thing. Whatever you did with fire, then you need to get it out also equally with the pursuit with, with, a, sense of, with a sense of fire. Okay, Lamed Beis, hey, let's keep moving. We have barely begun, and there's so much more to say. Lamed Beis, we have the story of the Mekneh Rav, Ha'elavnei Gad, Ha'elavnei Ruvain. Two and a half of the tribes are going to take up, um, are going to take up residence east of the Yardin. And they come, B'nei Ruvain, B'nei Gad, and half of Menasha, and they say, we don't want to live with everybody else. We're not ready to make Aliyah, because our business is east of the Yardin. Mekneh Rav, we've got a lot of livestock, and therefore, it's much more uh, convenient it's much more profitable for our business to, in fact, not live uh, in Israel proper, but to live east of the east of the Yardin. So Reuven and God put forth this request. They had a lot. And Moshe's reaction is, Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Everyone else should risk their children's lives, front, fight on the front line, and you're going to sit conveniently and comfortably under your palm trees because this is where your business, this is where it's profitable, this is where it's more comfortable. No, you got to get over here. You'll join us and fight. And where we have the institution of Tanai, of condition and business, is learned from this section because Moshe gives them a condition. You come and you fight, then no problem. You could take up residence there. But you're not going to let other people. What bothered Moshe most, what bothered Moshe most, is not that Reuven and God were not Zionistic, that they were willing to live outside of Israel. That's not what bothered him. What bothered him was that they were not no say ba'olam chavero. Your brothers should risk their lives. The rest of the community should be on the front line and you're sitting comfortably and conveniently. This is a message for diaspora Jewry that even, you know, we're all obligated to send our sons into, into the army. And make no mistake, the IDF is protecting Jews all around the world and us wherever we may live. And if we have a valid reason not to make Aliyah yet, we don't have a valid reason not to be struggling with Aliyah, but none of us have an excuse not to be supporting the IDF in whatever which way our soldiers who are risking their lives and fighting on the front line. I'm not suggesting all of our children need to go and volunteer, but all of us need to reach into our pockets, need to do what we can. That is part of the message of this, a very part, of, big part of the message of this, of this story. Moshe gives them a shtickle musr because they began and they said, let us, let us uh, we'll build pens for our flock. Oh yeah, we'll also build homes and schools for our children and, uh, and we want to settle here. And Moshe says, yeah, 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 you'll take care of your children and they take, then, you'll take care of your, then you'll take care of their property. So he's giving them a little bit of a, uh, a musr that what needs to come first, the priority in your life needs to not be your things, but needs to be your people, it needs to be your relationship, it needs to be your family, it needs to be your children. There's someone else in Chumash described as having Mikneh Rav, but doesn't get that criticism. Moshe here gives Musr, gives Tochacha. There's someone else in Chumash who's described as having Mikneh Rav, lots of livestock, wealthy, and yet they're not criticized. Namely, Avram Avinu. 
Avram had a lot of livestock, a lot of gold, and a lot of silver. And yet, there's no criticism. Hashem doesn't seem disappointed in Avram. So the Sefer Nachlas Tzvi explains that with Avram, it first mentions his name, and then Mikneh. Why? This is such a powerful lesson. It says, He was Avram. Avram the Eved Hashem. Avram the Ivri. Avram the person. Oh, he also happened to be very wealthy. He also happened to have a lot of things. But that didn't define him. It wasn't who he was. It wasn't intertwined and wrapped up with his very identity. However, when it came to Ruven and God, You know who they were known by? They had the Mercedes, the Tesla, they lived in the mansion, the private plane, the yacht. They wore the, I don't even know the names, the Ferragamo or the whatever. They were defined by. It was wrapped up with their identity. It's who they were. So Avram Avinu, you're allowed to have and you're allowed to enjoy. Not only is there nothing wrong, there's something beautiful with having all that. It can never define you. You can never confuse it with who you are or what your life is about. So first he was an Avram, defined by his values, his ideals, his personality, his relationships with with his family, with others, with Hashem. And only after that are we told that he also happened to have lots of things. Where in contrast, Reuven and God had lots of things. And then, yeah, that's what defined them. That is, in fact, who they were. Pasuk, Perak Lamed Beis, Pasuk, Hey. So, my, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Racheli, once suggested this pshat at our Shabbos table. And then this year I saw it in the Chedusha Arim. So I have to tell her that she was mechaving to a Chedusha Arim. What does the Chedusha Arim say? Chedusha Arim says, the Chedusha Arim says, why is it described as, um, why is it described, why, why did they want to go east of the Yardin? They had no Zionistic leanings. They didn't connect to the rest of Klai Israel. Was it simply driven by the vort we just said, that they prioritized their things ahead of their people? Why is it that they wanted to go east of the Yardin? So the Chidush Arim says a beautiful vort. You know why they wanted to do it? Not because they lacked no Seba'ol, because they had an incredible no Seba'ol. Not because they didn't care about their fellow Jew, because they cared incredibly about their fellow Jew. And who was their fellow Jew they cared so much about? Was none other than Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe desperately wanted to get into Israel. And no matter how many times he asked and how many times he requested, Hashem said, I'm so sorry, but the answer is no. So Reuven and God hatched this incredible scheme. They said, you know, if we take up residence east of the Yardin and we expand the border a little bit that way, then Moshe, you will in fact have been in the greater Israel. Maybe not Israel proper, but you will have been and visited in the greater Israel. So therefore, they requested east of the Yardin, so the Chedush Arim, so that Moshe Rabbeinu himself would be able to be in and part of the greater Israel. And in that way, it's not a failure of being Nosei Ba'olam Chavero. It's an expression of being Nosei Ba'olam Chavero. That's why they requested it. And then we have the end of the parasha, which tells us, Perek, Lama Beis, Pasuk Chav Beis, that, you better follow through on your word. We made this condition. You're going to join us to conquer the, war, the, the land, and then you can go back and take up residence where you want east of the Yardin. And why do you have to do this? You need to be clean. You need to be naki. You need to be clean in the eyes of others and in the eyes of 
and the eyes of Hashem. You need to be clean in the eyes of others and in the eyes of Hashem. Rabbi Soloveitchik in the Rav Chumash points out that the prohibition of Maris Ayin involves avoiding doing things that raise suspicion that you're violating halacha. He quotes here the Ramah that, you know, uh, the Ramah says they used to produce milk from almonds. People wanted a power of coffee, so they had almond milk. So the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah quotes, that if you're drinking almond milk after you had meat, you need to have almonds on the table next to the milk so people will know. Right? When, when non-dairy creamer first came out, Hechsherim required at a simcha that you actually had the container of the non-dairy creamer or some sign that it's non-dairy creamer, lest it be marasayin, you just served a fleshik suda and now you're putting out milk. So you had to have the bottle, you had to have the carton of non-dairy, of non-dairy creamer. It's halacha in Shulchan because of marasayin. Marasayin. Why do we have an institution of marasayin? What do I care what people think? If I go into Burger King to get a Diet Coke or to use the bathroom, what do I need to be concerned with someone thinking about why I'm there? If I'm drinking what I know to be almond milk, non-dairy creamer, what do I care that someone thinks that I just am having milk right after I have meat? Who cares? As long as I do the right thing, don't I have to answer to myself? Don't I have to be able to look in the mirror? Don't I have to be able to sleep at night? Why do I care what other people think? This is the Torah's reason. Says the Rav, this is the source of Mar Yisrael. You need to be naki me'ashem o Yisrael. We do care. We do care what other people think. And here he says there's a machlokas between the Ramah and the Maharshal and the two reasons of Marasayin. According to one, Marasayin is a prohibition of lifnei iver. Because if someone sees me coming out of Burger King, they don't know I had a Diet Coke or use the bathroom. They think, I guess Burger King went under the ORB. If somebody sees me drinking milk in my coffee after having meat, they don't know it's almond milk. They think, I guess there's a new kula, coronavirus kula. Must be during coronavirus, you're allowed to have dairy right after meat. So the first understanding of the prohibition of Marasayan is it's a function of lifne iver. You're putting a stumbling block in front of somebody else. They're going to misinterpret and not know what you've done, and they're going to extrapolate the wrong conclusion, and they themselves are going to violate law. However, the, that's the Maharshal. However, the Ramah understands Marasayan differently. Marasayan is not a fear that I'm going to put a stumbling block in front of you. Marasayan is I'm not allowed to speak Lashon Hara about myself. Just like I can't gossip or misrepresent or distort things about you, I also can't do so about myself. So to give you an impression about me that's not true is a violation of, it's a violation of, uh, of Lashon Hara about myself. Visim Nikiyim. Visim Nikiyim. You have to be pure. You have to be holy. You have to represent truth. You have to represent yourself very, very well. Rav Asher Weiss quotes a third reason. Rav Asher Weiss says, Visim Nikiyim Hashem Ami Yisrael. He quotes an incredible Chsam Sefer. The Chsam Sofer in Chuvos Chelik Vav, Simen Nun Tes, the Chsam Sofer says the following. Duh, Banai Vitamid, I know my children and my students. This is the Chsam Sofer of Moshe Sofer of Pressburg. And he says the following. No, my precious children and students. Kikol Yamai Haisi Mitztair Al Amikra Azavi Yisim Nikim Yashem Yisrael. The Chsam Sofer says, I'm not worried about keeping kosher. And I'm not worried about how I did when it came to Lashon Hara. And I'm not worried and I don't, I'm not anxious about my, my observance of other areas of Halacha. You know what keeps me up at night, says the Chsam Sofer? You know what worries me? Whether I fulfilled this mitzvah. Have I been above reproach? Have I been beyond criticism? Have I, have I followed through? He says, you know, it's easy, easier to be naki from Hashem than it is to be naki from other people. Why? Because Hashem always knows the truth. 
Hashem knows our motivation, Hashem knows our behavior, Hashem knows everything. So to be naki from Hashem, you can't hide anything from it anyway. So says the Chassam Sofer, which part of this mandate is harder, being naki from Hashem or being naki from, from other people, Yisrael? It's harder to be naki from people. It's harder to be naki from people. Don't circumvent or skirt the system. Don't do shtick. Don't get away with shtick. Don't mis- person has to be naki me'ashem o Yisrael. Do the right thing and be the right thing. When people are looking, when they're not looking, naki, person should be naki. So wonders, and he goes on and on. He says, Ani herhesi kama pa'amim. Says the Chassam Sofer, I've wondered many times, im efshar shakim adam ba'ola mikra ze'al mitchonuso. I wonder whether anyone has ever truly fulfilled this mitzvah. Has anyone ever truly fulfilled this mandate? Visim nikiyim me'ashem o Yisrael. Is anyone above reproach? Is anyone above criticism? Is anyone above suspicion? Is anyone able to carry and conduct themselves at that level? So Rav Asher unpacks this Chassam Sofer and tries to get to the bottom line. We don't have time to go in depth into this essay, but he says, what's at the core of this mitzvah? He says, It's not a function of Lufna Iver, and it's not a function of Lashon Hara. You know what the prohibition is of Maris Ayin? It's a prohibition of Chilal Hashem. We are put here to live a certain life and carry ourselves in a certain way. And if we conduct ourselves in a way that people can be suspicious, then we've created Chil Hashem. So at the core of this mitzvah that Chassam Sofer wonders whether anyone has ever kept in all of time is the potential problem of having made a Chilal Hashem. Okay, a lot more to talk about. Let's move over to Parshas Masay. We've got to give some love to Parshas Masay. Parshas Masih, page 918 in the Yor Scroll Stone, Chumash Perak Lamed Gimel, chapter 33. Let's review everywhere we've been. It's time now to go through all the stops along the journey. Let's go all the journey. The Magan Avram writes in the commentary in Shulchan Arach, the Magan Avram says that this is so important to review the journey that it's also to break it up. The Aliyah that includes all the stops of the journey, we have the custom, we don't break up that Aliyah. It makes for a very long first aliyah of Parshas Masay. That's how important it is to read this and to read it all as one unit. What is so important about it? What's going on here? Says Rashi, Why are we reviewing all the places I've been? Imagine at the end of someone's life. Well, we lived here and we lived there. We took a vacation there. We stopped here. I worked at that company. We went here. We went here. Okay, oh, that's nice. Why are you taking our time now with it? I was there with you. I remember. I read the book. I read it all. I lived it all. Says Rashi, It's telling us the incredible loving kindness. Rashi says the main purpose that we're delineating all of these places that we're reviewing is to consider the first 14 journeys took place during the before the Miraglam, first 16 months. Eight happened in the back end after the 39th year. So even though the Jews were condemned to 40 years in the desert and we thought that we were packing and unpacking all the time, Rashi tells us the first pshat is Hashem's incredible kindness that we stayed in most in one location in Kadesh for 20 years. We were not in fact such wandering nomads. Hashem was so kind to us that He structured things in such a way that we were not wandering that often and that's why we're reviewing this in order to see Hashem's chesed, in order to see and feel His loving kindness. Rashi has a second, second pshat. Namely, uh, 
And so we saw that Rav Tachanu Dash Mashal Melech Shaya Beno Cholav Alichol Lamakam Rachel Gerfuoso. It's a Mashal a person, God forbid, had a sick child, and you traveled far in order to try to treat this child. On the way back of successful treatment, you start to always oh, stay in this hotel, and we had a layover in this airport, and then we went over here. Remember the Toblerone bar I bought you when we passed through Switzerland. These were all the places we stopped. These are all part of the process of our journey. This reminds all of this reminds us about where we came from. What is really going on over here? So I just want to share a couple of insights with you. The Sforno. The Sforno says, you know what's going on over here? Let's go right back to the medieval sources, the Mepharshim. The Sforno says, you know what's going on over here? As soon as I find the Sforno, I will read it to you. Where did he go? Ravavadya Sforno. There it is. It says these are the Masa'im. These are the journeys, the goings out, and the coming in. And we reverse this language and we change this language. And which is it? Is it the going out or the coming in? Is it the journey or the standing still? And says the Sforno, the Famim Kara Hepechze. We keep switching it back and forth. Which is it? Because of Gamkin Inyan Hamasa. Sometimes the going out was difficult, sometimes the coming in was difficult. The Svarno says, you know, we have journeys and we have departures. In life, sometimes you leave in order to go, and sometimes you go because you need to leave. Sometimes there's a destination you're going to, so it's time to leave. And sometimes you need to get out of here, so it's time to go, and you don't even know where the destination is. And says the Svarna, both are hinted to. The Jewish people on their journey, and the Sifrei Kabbalah, all the Hasidic Sherebas talk about, that all these stops and all these journeys ref- reflect and represent what each of us have, what every Jew has in our life. Our lives are made up of journeys, of travels, of sojourns. And sometimes we get up and we go because we need to leave. It was time to leave Eastern Europe in the 20th century. Some think it's time to leave North America, America, now. Sometimes you get up and you need to leave because it's time to leave long before you know where you're going. And other times you want to go. So in order to go, you get up and leave. So uh, in either case, the Svarno says it's represented in these journeys, which really reflect our attitude to in life. The Rechaim HaKadosh has a different interpretation. And the Rechaim HaKadosh says the following. Says the Rechaim, it's a very powerful Kabbalistic idea. And the idea is the following. Wherever we go in life and whatever we've been through in life is part of our journey. We could regret it. We could wish it didn't happen. We can reject it. We can try to delete it. But it's part of shaping who we are. Instead, we should embrace it and we should realize that our mission and our challenge was whatever part of our journey, whatever stops made along the way, was to be able to enable it to transform us, was to be able to transform it with Kedusha. The Jewish people took out the sparks of holiness. Every place they stopped, they were meant to go there. This is one of the ideas of the exile. Hashem dispersed us across the world to take our Jewish values and ideals and to bring it to every civilization and society in which we were destined to live. It's one of the understandings of why we were spread out in the exile. That's true collectively and nationally, and it's also true independently and individually for each and every one of us. Going through corona, going through a pandemic, going through a hard time, we're not supposed to live with regret and wishes. We're supposed to live and say, what am I meant to take out of this? How is it meant to make me better or different or transform me? Why is this one of the stops on my journey? Why am I here? 
and why was I destined to stop here? So just like Klai Yisrael had all these stops and had to review them, so too we go through the same, we go through the same experience. Um, let's end with one more vote. I want to talk about why is that Mos HaKohen? Why is the person who kills by accident, who's sent into an Ir Miklat, a city of refuge, why, is, why are they there until the Kohen? Why is it tied to the Kohen's life, the Kohen Gadol, until the Kohen Gadol dies? What was the coin's responsibility to daven for his generation? It's a lot to talk about that, but we don't have time. So let's go to one last thought. Perak Lamed Hey Pasach of Dalid, chapter thirty-five, verse twenty-four, on page nine hundred and thirty in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, says the pasuk. Perak Lamed Hey Pasach Chav Dalid, Ani Hashem. Sorry, wrong pasuk. Lamed Dalid. Lamed Dalid. Page 932. We have these Ari Miklat. Someone murders by accident. We set up the cities of refuge. We have three in Israel and three east of the Yardin. Why did two and a half tribes need as many cities of refuge as the other nine and a half tribes? You know why, our rabbis tell us? Because the two and a half tribes prioritize their things. When people prioritize things, they end up having more accidental murders in their midst. And people who don't prioritize things, but prioritize ideas and values have less accidental murders in their midst. So you needed three for nine and a half, and three for two and a half tribes, east of the Yardin. In any case, the Torah says, Do not contaminate the land that you are dwelling on. Says God, why? Because you know who else lives there? It's my house. You're a guest in my house. God says the land is my house. Don't make it dirty. Don't contaminate it. Don't soil it. Says Hashem, because I am Hashem and I dwell and exist among you. Revolva has a beautiful comment on this. And the Revolva can be found in his Sefer Ale Shor, page Resh Pei Beis, Sharavi. Ale Shor, page Resh Pei Beis. And he says the following will end with this insight of Revolva. He says, Lov Zubavad, very appropriate for the three weeks. We're longing, the Churban, we want to get back, Eretz Yisrael, Shechina, Geula. Lov Zubavad, Nitna. We tend to think that. Hashem gave us the whole earth. He said, V'kivshua, go conquer it. L'ashem ha'aratzim la'ah. I'm sorry, Hashemayim shemayim l'ashem ha'aratzim The heavens belong to God, but the earth He gave to us. That's a mistake. If you look at the Sfarno on Parshas Bahar, Kili ha'aratz. The Sfarno writes something amazing. Even though Hashem said, Hashemayim shemayim l'ashem ha'aratzim l'ashem I'm keeping the heavens for me, and I've given you the earth, says God, except for one small country. Ha'aratzim with the exception of Eretz Yisrael, that's still mine. That's still mine. When you go to Boca and to the five towns in Teaneck and Detroit and Chicago and LA and South America and Australia and South Africa, it's your house. That's your space. It's yours. But when you come to Eretz Yisrael, it's my house, says the Svarno. He never gave it to us. He continues to dwell there. Which means that you never really own property in Israel because it really continues to belong to God all along. So what do we have in Israel? We don't actually have ownership in the land. All we have and all we have access to is the peros, the fruit of the land, what it produces. And that's why, are you ready? I'm glad you stayed with us. Stay with us one more moment. That's why in the bracha achrona, what do we say? In the bracha me'in shalos, We reference and ask Hashem to take us back to Israel, the good land that He gave us. And why did He give it to us? To eat of its fruit, 
and to be satisfied from its goodness. And Revolba points out, we get this from Yermio and Nehemiah, and now he points out the following. There's a machlokas post game, the Torah quotes a machlokas in the Bracham Ein Shalosh. Do you say, Do we include those words or not? And the Bach says about this, because of Od, the Bach says about this not to say it, but he says, How could that be? How could you not say it? Hashem lives in the land. What he's saying, and we have to end with this, the Bach says, when you eat the fruit of Israel, you're imbibing Hashem. You're tasting Hashem Himself. And that's why we say, Those are the very words that we're saying. We're imbibing a sense of Hashem. We're eating, we're spirituality, the Shechina itself, the attitude. You drink wine from Israel, it's not just wine, it's from Israel, it has the grapes, it comes with the Shechina of Hashem. It's an altogether different approach and attitude, even to the very way we eat. Wishing everyone a happy, a holy, and a healthy day. Stay tuned tomorrow morning, 10 minutes of meaning at 8.15, Living with the Moon at 8.45. Tomorrow night, behind the beam at 9 p.m. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel. Even if you're not, please do so. And everyone have a great, great day.